Hey Church, one of the joys about COVID-19 is that it's given me time just to reflect carefully, theologically and practically on ministry. But more specifically, family ministry, ministry to the next generation, the emerging generation. And so in this time together, I'm not going to preach like I normally would. I'm actually going to reflect upon the why of family ministry and the how of family ministry in two segments. But before we get into this teaching, I would encourage you to open up the the physical um, PDF and look at the second page on my teaching, which has the title Key Definitions. It would be good to just read through those key definitions which I'll bring up in this teaching so that we're all on the same page when I use certain words and phrases. But before we get into the why of family ministry, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed building your church as you promised. Help us to critically engage with your scriptures today and also reflect upon how those scriptures can um, pave the way for the next millennium of Christian ministry here at Scone Anglican and beyond. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Well, to understand the why of family ministry, we must reflect upon the rich theme of family ministry throughout the history of the church. And to to commence this journey together of going through the history of family ministry at a great speed, we're going to launch in with Genesis. In Genesis, Abraham was promised that his descendants would be a great nation. And since this promise was for future generations, later on Moses detailed how it would be fulfilled. Parents were called to impress the commands of God upon their children. Moses commanded the fathers to instruct their sons, reminding them of the saving work of God. But there was a heartbreaking problem Even though Moses' follower proclaimed that as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord, ministry to the next generation was lost. Parents neglected their role as disciple makers. They failed to pass on the purposes and plans of God to their children. The book of Judges recounts the unfortunate situation that emerged when children were not guarded to know the Lord, all the works that he has done for Israel. The nation of Israel backslid into rebellion. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They did what was right in their own eyes. The prosperity of the land that overflowed with milk and honey became a place of overwhelming dishonor. Really, as soon as Um, the people of God began to go into the land they were promised. And since following the law of God was critical to Israel's identity, the sages, those who wrote the wisdom writings, later reclaimed the vision of family ministry. In fact, Proverbs is written from the perspective of a father to his son. Verse 8 of chapter 1 says this, Listen, my son. To your father's instruction and do not forsake 
your mother's teaching. It is no wonder that the wise father also declared near the end of Proverbs, teach a youth about the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The psalmist also proclaimed, the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. Tents in our context would be households because earlier in the Bible, the people of Israel lived in tents. But here's the point. Discipleship in the context of the multi-generational family household was the primary place where Yahweh gave wisdom to the emerging generation. And it might surprise you, but in this context, in the Old Testament, these households could be um, 80 or so people within them. There were large families who lived together. And the leaders of those families would definitely bestow the wisdom of God, or at least that was their calling. And now turning to the New Testament, the family household remained the central locus point for discipleship. However, in this period, the theology of the family extended beyond the walls of the household. Jesus was raised not only in a faithful, law-abiding home, he was also taught by the teachers in the temple courts. While the role of the household leaders as disciples was maintained, it was also innovated. The next generation was raised by the religious leaders. Even on the day of Pentecost, this fresh home church partnership is clear, is visible. When Peter proclaimed the gospel with dispatch, with speed, he said, the gospel is for you and for your generation. Then after the gospel um, cut people to the heart, convicted them of their sin, a community was birthed. The households gathered each day in the temple courts. They listened to the apostles teaching, broke bread, fellowshiped and prayed. But this was not the fullest expression of the early church. Households broke bread in their homes as well and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God as we saw in our last series on Acts 2. Discipleship had two harmonious educational centres, the church and the home. You got that, guys. Church and home partnering together to disciple the next generation. And when the church and home worked together, guess what happened? Beautiful things happened. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. People were responding to the gospel. They were seeing that there was more to life than what they once were living. They were turning to Christ and finding eternal salvation. But they weren't just turning to Christ individually. They were becoming a family with other families. The church, the many households gathered together, was being formed. And we saw so many families turn to Christ. Entire households turned to Christ. The household of Cornelius was transformed. The household of Liz, Lydia was redeemed. The household of Crispus was saved. The work of the gospel was bliss. 
But to fully appreciate the depth of this fruit, we need to understand the dynamics of a first century household. In this period, a household consisted of two things, a business and a family. Family members, employees and servants made up the family, the household. In fact, the household had clusters of biological families living within the same space. And the household leader would influence the religious persuasion of the entire household. Knowing that faith was received corporately, the apostles strategically focused their ministry on household leaders. And we see this in Acts chapter 16, verses 33. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And here's the point. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer turned to Christ and his whole family, which would have been quite large, I believe, turned to faith with him, became Christians. The vision of the apostles was to see entire households transformed by Christ one by one. And that's how the witness enabled so, and that's how the gospel witness expanded through the whole cosmos, through the whole the world. It's by people, household leaders, being converted by Christ. It is then no surprise that the application of Paul's ministry targets the household. He commands fathers to bring up their children in the training and instruction of the Lord. He affirms the ministry of Timothy's mother and grandmother, for they taught Timothy the scriptures from infancy and made him wise for salvation. He exhorts children to obey their parents in everything, for it pleases the Lord. He challenges masters to provide their slaves with what is right and fair. The household leader, or leaders, plural, was called to instruct their household members in the way of Christ, the code of Christ. And with the legacy of the apostles proclaimed, this tradition was not neglected at all in the early church. One prolific writer from the early church wrote this about the Christian household. They pray together. They worship together and fast together. They instruct one another. They encourage one another. They strengthen one another. Psalms and hymns they sing to one another striving to see which one of them will chant more beautifully the praises of their Lord. Hearing and seeing Christ, they rejoice. Also uphold, upholding this rich legacy of household ministry is a 4th century archbishop and prolific preacher. He urged that every house should be church and every head of a family a shepherd of Christ. While this vision for the family was unquestionable through the early church, this biblical model of discipleship was, however, lost throughout human history. During the late medieval period, the emphasis of worship shifted from a family-focused culture to a priest-focused culture. The war cry of this new model was, I guess, the father knows best. And sadly, the church-home partnership of discipleship was lost. In fact, the Council of Trent prohibited the private reading of Scripture and any kind of worship activity 
outside of the church service. And by the end of the medieval period, the church members could only hear the scriptures read out in Latin. They were disempowered and confused and undereducated. The educational centers, the church and home faded away. But only for a time. In the 16th century, there was a retrieval of biblical discipleship. The reformers emphasized the essential role of the family and the preached word in the mother tongue, the language of the people. According to Martin Luther, the catalyst for the German Reformation, the father was responsible to instruct his children in godliness. He even made this provocative statement. You ready? The father is the bishop and priest of his home. Ouch. He reminded the church that they are a priesthood of all believers, which is extremely biblical. We need to hold on to that truth. We're a priesthood of all believers. And he elevated the status of women in society. In that same century, John Calvin, the influential French reformer, made family worship a core practice of those who he discipled. And he saw those families as like small groups, which were scattering throughout the whole um, region of Europe. That's why he's so influential, I believe, because so many jumped on board with this biblical vision of discipleship. They, They reclaimed their biblical roots. And so he encouraged individuals to teach their families properly. Around the same time, 47 Anglican scholars poetically crafted the King James Bible, placing the word of God in the hands of many English families with the help of the printing press, of course. And while the reformers reclaimed the doctrines of grace, their followers worked hard to apply these blessings to the household. In the early 17th century, Lewis Bailey, a bishop of the Anglican Church, wrote a book titled The Practice of Piety. In his book, he said, call all the family to some convenient room and first either read a chapter of the Word of God or cause it to be read um, distinctively by another person. If leisure serves, admonish them with some remarkable notes and then kneeling down, with them in reverence, pray with them. Pray with your family, he wanted them to do. His family worship was led by the Anglican liturgy, morning prayer for a family. He would also teach, pray and sing with his household in the evening. Then in the mid-18th century, the holiness movement was birthed. John Wesley, the Anglican minister, sought to revitalize the church. To achieve this vision, he wrote down three objectives. The first objective was to revive and guide the family worship. Wesley challenged the children to remain steadfast in family worship. He wanted children to study the scriptures alongside their parents. He actually wanted the parents to lead them. He also counseled household leaders, have time every day for reading, meditation, which is the slow enjoyment of God's word, and prayers. Neither should any day pass without Family prayers. He was a prayer warrior. While Wesley was the catalyst for this English revival, 
I think we need to focus in on one of the key influences in John's life. Susan Wesley, his mother, the true hero. She instigated the custom of singing psalms, reading through sermons, manuscripts, sorry, um, transcripts, and praying through evening prayer with her children and neighbours. But despite the fruit of the Reformations and revivals, the legacy of household discipleship was lost again. And you might be thinking, oh, this is another time it's lost? Are you kidding me, Jesse? Yes, that happened in her church history. Her household discipleship was lost again. As the Industrial Revolution reshaped the economic structures of the society, household leaders found themselves separated from one another, travelling long distances for work. The daily rhythms of life were disrupted. Large numbers of young men and women were left virtually without moral oversight. Their family became so fragmented, a religious education researcher says this, to a large extent, the family lost the father. The family lost the father. Cultural and social revolutions resulted in the widespread disengagement of fathers from their children's Christian formation, as one researcher says. And due to these shifts in society, new groups emerged to care for the family. Sunday school societies to educate the impoverished children, youth societies to equip the teens for a life of growth and evangelism, Absence, um, um, alcohol societies to care for those who are struggling with alcohol addiction, and missionary societies to reconvert the families. The household leaders, particularly fathers, had delegated the upbringing of their children to the school, the state, and the church. By the turn of the 20th century, it was not uncommon for a single church to have a kids' church for every age group, mission societies, sports clubs, dance balls, book clubs, and a variety of youth associations, to list a few. And with this backdrop in view, we enter the 21st century. By this time, most families have adopted secular systems of instruction. Most church parents have embraced an outsourcing approach to discipleship. The church and school have become almost solely responsible for the spiritual formation of their children. Generation-specific discipleship programs have become the norm and often isolated themselves from the family and large church gatherings. And here's the kicker. Priests, ministers have become CEOs. Deacons have become event planners. Church members, and this is going to hurt a few, have become customers. Multi-generational discipleship and worship has almost vanished from the church of today. Families sent on mission has become a rare phenomenon. Family worship is unheard of amongst some families 
who would say that they've been Christians their entire lives. We are living in a modern discipleship crisis. And most of us do not even know it. Most of us don't know that we are in such a discipleship crisis. While generation-specific programs can have their place, youth groups, kids' clubs, lunch groups, playtime ministries, and Christian studies, if these parachurch initiatives do not harmonise with the church and household, they will unlikely produce long-term disciples. Let me say that again. If these parachurch initiatives, ministries, do not harmonise with the church and household, they will unlikely produce long-term disciples. And the research is clear about this. Kara Powell says, multiple studies highlight that 40 to 50% of youth group seniors, like the young people in your church, drift from God and the faith community after they graduate from high school. And Jay Strother says this, the ministry is having the greatest success at seeing young people emerge into mature Christians are those that facilitate a parent-church partnership focused on instilling specific beliefs and practices in a child's life from a very early age, Barna Research. Discipleship in the church and household is vital to our Christian identity and the crux of our missionary witness. Reversing the trend will require a new type of leader, one that grounds their practice in apostolic theology, one that is sensitive to the history of the church, one that can read the modern times with prophetic insight, one that is able to revitalise our imaginations, one that can be inclusive of the emerging generation, one that is wise in managing resources, and one that equips parents to make disciples. Now, I'm not saying that that's me as a leader, but that's my goal to become as a leader. I hope to be a leader that is so sensitive to where we are and where we come from that we can move forward with a prophetic, Jesus-centred vision for discipleship. So as a church, I just encourage you to keep on praying for me as your minister, that I lead you in a biblical and historical um, version of discipleship that I feel which I feel is grounded in the word of God and has been proven to sustain Christians throughout many millenniums. Well, that's part one, the why of family ministry. Now we're going to venture into the how of family ministry here at Scone Anglican. So now to apply the apostles' vision for the family, we will actually need to formulate a clear model for the church and home, and by extension, our parachurch initiatives. Considering the extensive research into next generation ministry, we'll need to adopt the historical model that equips household leaders and integrates the emerging generation into the broader life of the church 
And I've coined this model as the family-focused church. And I've got a definition um, on my PDF if you want to look at it. So the church must primarily, I believe, restructure itself to equip household leaders for maximum impact. It must also work hard to empower young people in all our church gatherings. While parachurch ministries have their place for they can help us connect with the unchurched child and teenager and parents, I often ask this question, where are they now? For unless these parachurch ministries have a card up their sleeve, which is the persistent art of handcrafting disciples, integrating them into the church community and empowering them to be key contributors in all our services, these large events and programs will only generate customers. And so we must equip our household leaders to become our rock-solid disciple makers. We must, as Paul Timothy Jones says, our family ministry expert, draw the generations together, equipping parents or household leaders, because there's many different styles of households. Some of you might be a foster parent. Championing their role as primary disciple makers, we must do. And holding these disciple makers accountable. Paul also says all programs and events should be multi-generational with a strong focus on parents' responsibility to evangelize and disciple their own children. And there is good news, I believe, in all this. The vision here of household discipleship is becoming a reality at Scone Anglican Church. You might be wondering, "Mm, I'm not sure about that, Jesse. I thought it'd be good just to share some fruit. At the beginning of the year, I communicated a simple vision for the church moving forward. We exist to glorify God by making gospel-centered disciples who gather in hope, grow in faith, and go in love. I then expanded upon this vision Gathering is the fuel for gospel-centered hope. When we gather, we are refined by the gospel through preaching, singing, praying, reading, eating, and tithing. This vision is primarily achieved in our church gatherings, our church services. Second, growing is the rhythm of gospel-centered faith. We grow by encouraging and empowering each other to partake in a life of household discipleship. This vision is primarily achieved in our gospel communities. Third, going is the overflow of gospel-centered love. We go by extending God's love to all people. This vision is primarily achieved when the clusters of families are strategically sent on mission into the local community. And with this simple and focused vision in mind, in place, Guess what's happened? The church has grown um, spiritually and numerically. The contemporary service has grown from 5 to 10 members to 30 to 40 members, including youth and children. Two new gospel communities have been launched with one more to be planted soon. The distribution of sermons to households has increased from 80 to 105 deliveries. The financial generosity of the people is growing, paving the way for a vibrant ministry amongst the emerging generation. The testimonies of 
growth are limitless, more than I have ever heard in my last eight years of gospel ministry. The fruit is bliss, or better put, tangible and visible. It's exciting to see God's people at work being sent out from here in the church as they gather, sent out to make disciples. I can see it beginning to pave away. But even though this discipleship strategy is already at work, the vision is now ready to be developed. In the present moment, our gospel communities are only meeting about 40 times per year at best. If we desire to soak the emerging generation in the gospel, we need to develop a vision that equips our households to grow 365 days per year. For deep faith is instilled through the everyday rhythms of life, as J. James sorry, Smith um, has shown us through his research. Hence, we will need to encourage individual families within the gospel communities to worship outside of their weekly meetings. We'll need to retrieve the biblical vision of family worship and to help us further understand the daily rhythm of family worship, it would be helpful to unpack the three core commitments of this daily family multi-generational rhythm. These principles can also be implied in households who only have one person living there. And so don't feel excluded. Family worship is for everyone. First, our households are called to worship through reading. How does this work? In the case of families with young children, um, read through narratives, explaining them with enthusiasm. For me, I have a little um, book for Evelyn, my daughter, and we read that every time at dinner. Um, it's got lots of big pictures and she enjoys it. And it's quite short and sharp. You can read through the scripture with your children, chapter by chapter, depending on their age. In the case of teenagers, ask thought-provoking questions, guide them through tough passages, don't avoid the tough passages, explaining the key tenets of the faith, memorize key passages from the sermon series so it connects you with God's people outside of your household, re-listen to our sermons on Spotify and apply it to your household, pour the gospel into your minds by reading together. That's the first point. Second, our households are called to worship through praying. How does this work? You can pray with your children day by day, keeping a family prayer journal. Use the morning and evening prayer from the prayer book of Australia. Ask the family for their prayer requests. Guide the family through adoration, confession, thanksgiving and supplications, praying for other people. Open the table to share the daily concerns and shortcomings that you've experienced as a family. Ask the children to pray for our church missionaries like Judith Calf. Memorize the Lord's Prayer. Write a prayer for the family that is soaked in the gospel. Ask me, Jesse, for some advice. Rejoice always. Pray without seeking. Give thanks in all circumstances. Pour the gospel into your soul by praying together. Third, our households are called to worship through singing. How does this work? You can sing with your children song by song. Buy a gospel-centered hymnal for each member of the family. Put together a Spotify playlist with gospel-centered songs. I'm happy to share mine. Mix up the weekly playlist with some Colin Buchanan or my friend Josh Gos Goscombe's music 
and that's helpful for young children. But just try to find time to sing together. Sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Pour the gospel into your spirit by singing together. Especially in this time where when we do return to worship, we can't sing. So sing at home with your family. And to ensure that family worship is viable, household leaders will need to be acknowledged as disciples, equipped as disciples, and held accountable as disciples. The church will need to develop systems to support the discipleship of household leaders. And as I've been reflecting upon how we can actually become a church that worships every day, that enjoys the rhythms of Bible reading, prayer, and singing, I've had to think about five key strategies that I want to implement in the near future. First, I plan to support household leaders in making their homes into spaces for discipleship. I'm looking forward to speaking with some parents or household leaders about how they could start doing family worship themselves. Second, I plan to develop resources for household leaders so that they can succeed in discipleship. So like lots of how-to guides or resources for leading young children in worship, sharing my own experiences. Third, I plan to connect the teaching ministries of the church to the home of discipleship. Fourth, I plan to organise cafe nights each term to equip household leaders for the task of discipleship. This will likely be be titled something along the lines of the Legacy Project. And fifth, I plan to promote the vision of family ministry at all meetings and inspire our church to financially pledge towards a full-time family minister in the future. While these plans will will, require blood, sweat, tears, I'm convinced that by following the tradition of the patriarchs, Apostles, early church fathers, reformers, revitalists, and researchers, every generation will be reached for the glory of God in the face of Christ. I am optimistic about that. We here at Scone have the capacity to do deeply effective, effective multi-generational discipleship if we invest and put our minds to it. I'm optimistic that we can do that. While this is well and good, there is likely one question still on your mind. How will we disciple the unchurched with this household model? Well, that's why we need our gospel communities and a mission project for our clusters of family. For Susan Wesley, her mission field was her neighbourhood and the clusters of families met in her home. For us, it is a little different. And to help you understand what this approach might look like in the Upper Hunter, I would like to illustrate this vision with our present gospel communities and their current mission projects. First, the Atkinson Gospel Community meet on Tuesday and their mission field is the Scone Grammar School. Since this group consists of four staff, two chapel prefects, and parents and students, the school and chapel services act as a strategic gateway between their mission field, the school, and their gospel community. This is also a pathway into the local church family and Sunday school ministries. Second, 
the Baker's Gospel Community um, meet on Tuesday and their mission field is the youth of Scone Grammar. Since this group consists of one staff, four teenagers and school parents, the possibility of starting a lunchtime group in the school is a strategic gateway into our gospel community. This is also a pathway into our local church. Third, the Baker Gospel Community is planting a new gospel community on Monday, and this will be focusing on Munchkin's Playtime. Since the group consists of people who are serving at Munchkin's Playtime already, inviting the young families over for lunch will be our strategic bridge for our gospel community and church. We will also focus on baptism families. Fourth, the Wix Gospel Community also meets throughout the week, and since the group is already connecting with young families, this can act as a strategic bridge into our kids' church, our Sunday school ministry. And finally, the Scally Gospel Community meets on Wednesday, and their mission field is St. Luke's Village. Since the group is in the same life stage as them, this can act as a strategic bridge for these seniors to be a part of our family our church family. While there are many more mission fields in our community, the public schools, food services, and the youth health organisations, we need to remain steadfast, planting one gospel community at a time. And so rather than starting with resource-heavy parachurch ministries, youth groups, kids clubs, talent nights, and breakfast groups, the launching pad for all next-gen ministry becomes the gospel community and its mission project. Or better put, the gospel community sent out on mission. And as these gospel communities grow, more can be planted and new mission initiatives can be birthed without the church becoming overwhelmed by the modern phenomena of event fatigue. Yes, I said it, guys. To achieve this vision, we need to resist the temptation to spread ourselves too thin. We must try to avoid becoming a busy church that is primarily event-driven. We must focus on being sent beyond the church walls with strategic focus. For when the church is fatigued and its resources are thinned, Our edge is blunted, our strength is weakened, our vision is diluted, and our supplies are exhausted. And when when our walls are down, spiritually speaking, due to our mental fatigue and physical exhaustion, we are more vulnerable to the mightiest blows from the evil one, not making disciples. So if we desire to transform the world for Christ, we must build upon the foundation of the apostles, the artisans of true discipleship. We must reclaim a hot Christianity, a spicy Christianity, and overflow with a richly gospel-centered life. We must focus on the household, the focal point for all biblical discipleship and missions. And so, if you are interested in being a part of this simple vision for our church, here are some next steps you can take today. First, 
If you are not already in a gospel community, please let us know. There are plenty of spaces for you. We would love for you to become partners in our discipleship journey and mission here at Scone Anglican. Second, if you feel called to become a gospel community leader, that would be excellent. I'd love to speak about leadership development, your present journey with Christ, and the mission project that God has placed upon your heart. Third, if you'd like to learn the art of family worship, would like to be equipped in this very important ministry, please let me know. We are developing resources for the church to equip our household leaders for the discipleship of their children. Me and Jessica look forward to sharing about our personal journey with family worship, the personal trials, and the glorious victories. Fourth, if you feel convicted to pledge a large donation of your income to the ministry of the next generation on top of your regular tithing, please let us know. This will help us to employ a full-time families minister in the near future. The family minister will focus primarily on developing our household ministries and your donation will be placed in a family ministry savings fund. And so if you feel like giving $1,000, $2,000, $5,000, $10,000, that would be really encouraging and kickstart this campaign. As you reflect upon these next steps, please be assured, I'm upholding you in prayer. And if you're interested in discuss, discussing these four points further that I left you with, please email me at jesse at sconeanglican.church or call me at 0429-907-322. I'd love to talk further about how we can recapture the family, how we can see the emerging generation be disciple makers themselves. Amen.